The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Let's go ahead and start. I'm going to open in prayer and we'll go ahead and we have a lot to cover this morning and I think it's going to be really a glorious time, so let's do it. Let's not lose anything. Lord, thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to gather and to study your word and to um, learn from it, and I pray that you would please strengthen each of us as we study. Lord, we don't want to be discontent people. We really want to be filled with your spirit and submissive, sweetly submissive to your will. Uh, we want to do the things that you, you have for us to do, and we want to delight in your overarching, wise, and complex providential plan pray this morning we couldn't have a more delightful subject than Christ, to study Jesus Christ and how he ministers contentment. So I pray that you would just expand our minds and our hearts and that we would have a sense of the greatness of Christ. And then as we apply this specific topic, that we would see aspects of Christ and his ministry that we perhaps haven't seen before. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I hope that you get a handout. Uh, it's a very terse kind of summary of a lot of material. My teaching outline is probably 50% longer than usual, and so we know how that's going to go. And next week, we're going on to a whole other topic. So I don't really know that I'm going to be able to finish everything on this sheet. But the sheet, I think, gives a good summary of where, um, where I want to go. Uh, basically, if I could sum up in, in, a, in a short sentence what I want to do today... Um, Jeremiah Burroughs, in his book, uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, has a chapter entitled, How Christ Teaches Contentment. Or uh, to pick up on a phrase uh, that another used in reference to prayer, with Christ in the school of contentment. That Christ has enrolled us, if we're disciples, he's enrolled us in a school of contentment. He wants to teach us contentment. So what we're going to do is we're going to zero in on the person and work of Christ and meditate on that in light of the topic of this class. I've found it to be an incredibly powerful um, meditation. For example, we're going to see how Christ was a content man himself. Uh, never was anyone more content than Christ. No one fulfilled uh, the definition and lived out the definition of contentment. And we'll see that, but it's a really powerful meditation. And then as we see Christ's uh, work as our high priest and our mediator, his atoning work, his resurrection, his intercession for us, all, of, all the blessings that he wins for us, all of these are instrumental in, our, in terms of our own contentment. That honestly, if we have the treasure hidden in the field or if we have the pearl of great price, we have everything we need for contentment no matter what's going on in our lives. Really, Christ is the secret of contentment. Uh, that having Christ, we have everything that we need for contentment. So that's, that's the whole, uh, this morning's class in a nutshell. That's what we're getting. And so uh, this sheet, uh, one-page summary of the, uh, what, I, what I wrote, um, actually it's interesting because I actually wrote a prose chapter for my book months ago. And then Joel, uh, as I was doing these area group meetings, uh, reverse engineered the thing and gave me a teaching outline. Usually it goes the other way around. I first do a teaching outline and turn it into a chapter. So this is kind of an interesting uh, proce process for me. Oh, also, this uh, past week we, uh, we closed the church for two days, so I wasn't here. Um, but that didn't free me up from working. Uh, it was a great opportunity to work on my contentment book. And I had the most delightful meditation on the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. It was really remarkable. You know, the, it says in, in Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure that a man found, uh, you know, hidden in a field. And, and when he found it, he hid it again. 
and then in his joy went and sold everything he had and bought the field. So I was, I was thinking, just using some imagination, which I like to do, um, do you think that the man opened the box? What are your thoughts? The treasure, is he digging out in the field? Maybe he's digging a, for a well or, or doing some plowing, and he finds a treasure box. Do you think he pried it open? I mean, come on. Imagine if he didn't. What a fool. It's like, I bet. I, I just have a feeling there's treasure in that box. And I'm going to sell everything I have to buy a box the contents of which I have no idea, but I just have a feeling it's going to be good. I mean, there's no way he did that. So he must have pried the thing open, and he did some kind of an inventory. And as he's rummaging through this treasure box, at some point, the sense of the value of what's in the box far exceeded his present possessions. You see what I'm saying? The inventory is the key. Without it, the man's a fool. There might be a dead animal inside the thing. There might be dirt. There might be a bunch of old papers or something that are worthless. And what a fool after he'd sold everything he had to buy that field and be bitterly disappointed as he opened the box and found that it was worthless. So let's just translate it into simple language. We need to take an inventory of our spiritual blessings in Christ. We need to go back through the box. We actually need to do it regularly. The more you go back into that box, open it up, and look at the treasure you have in Christ, the more content you're going to be, the more you're going to see how insignificant are those earthly things that are causing you so much discontent because you don't have them and you wish you did. And so therefore you're unhappy and they really are compared to the, the, the worth, the value of the treasure hidden in the field. They are as nothing. They really are. So the more we go back into Christ, the more you go back into your treasure box and see what you have, what Paul would say in Ephesians you know, one, three, uh, and four, he says that we have been lavishly gift, gifted with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. You are in and spiritual blessings. And we, we have come to learn as Christians, the spiritual blessings are infinitely more valuable than the physical ones. And yet the physical ones seem so incredibly important to us. You know, the, the thing, and that's what makes the prosperity gospel so terrible. It's like they're totally focused on physical blessings, on health and wealth. You know, on, on getting a good parking place, Joel Osteen said. He trusted God for a good parking place. Well, good for you. I've had one of those before, too. I've had some really bad parking places. Um, they don't matter. So you have to walk a little bit longer. If you get the great parking place every time, maybe you'll get out of shape and die of, of heart disease or something like that. You need a bad parking place from time to time. God knows what you need. So we are, we are looking this morning at, at Christ, our treasure hidden in the field. We're going to find out how he, he will minister contentment to us, how he is enough for contentment. If you have Christ, you have everything you need for contentment. So this is the handout. This is the outline there. I, I'm going to give you a guarantee that we will not finish it. And I'm also going to guarantee we're not going to go back to this topic next week. We have other topics. So just take the sheet and whatever I don't finish, go back and look at the scriptures and just continue your own meditation. I'm just going to get you started on it. We'll run out of time and then we'll keep going. So fundamentally, we, we would say that Jesus Christ is an infinite uh, a minister of infinite contentment and blessing. That's what he is. Uh, there's no end. Uh, you remember at the end of John's gospel, <clears throat> the apostle John said, that, just putting it in my own words, I didn't write everything Jesus did. If I did write everything Jesus did, the world wouldn't be able to contain the books. I think that that gives you a sense that, that even the Gospels are just a, a slight doorway into the beginning of blessings and meditation. There is more to learn about Christ. I'm going to steal my own thunder from a couple of weeks from now. Revelation 19, this is really cool. 
uh, as Jesus returns in front of that army from heaven, that heavenly army, and comes to conquer Antichrist and his army at the Battle of Armageddon and destroys all his enemies, it says there in the account that he has a name written on him that known only to himself, that he's the only one that knows it. And I thought, why did John tell us that? I mean, that's odd. Why tell us, I have a name and you don't know it? Um, and I think what it is, is he's saying, there are things about me you don't know. There's aspects to my personality. There's aspects, aspects to my plan. There's aspects to my intentions in the future that you don't know. doesn't mean that we'll never know them. Actually, I think that that will be the study for all eternity is, is Christ, the name written on him known only to himself. He says the same thing in Matthew 11. No one knows the Son except the Father. That's the kind of thing you can just skip right over and just don't even read because no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Oh, we get that. No one really knows. He says, actually, no one knows the second person of the Trinity either. You don't know me. And so, but we're learning him. We're getting to know him. And he will be our study for all eternity. So we're going to do a little bit of that study today. And what we're doing is we're taking this topic that we're looking at, contentment, and we're applying it to Christ or vice versa and putting the two together and, and just so many good blessings flow from it. So let's begin. Uh, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, in Hebrews uh, 12, 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, one translation has, uh, the founder and perfecter of our faith, author and perfecter, one of the translations has in Hebrews 12, 2. The Greek word is archegos, uh, one who takes the lead, the pioneer, the captain, moving out ahead of us. Um, what I want to say is Jesus is the pioneer of our contentment as well. I mean, really, any good positive topic of the Christian life, Jesus is, is foremost. He takes the first place in those things. Uh, he is preeminent in everything. Paul spoke of Christ as the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So I think it, it would be reasonable for us as Christians to think that he is the, the leading proponent and demonstrator of Christian contentment, that we're going to give him first place in this. Uh, and so that's, that's what I want to do. He's leading the way. He's the mighty pioneer and captain. He's fighting the enemies of our contentment. He slays all of the enemies of our, of our contentment so that he might bring us to a paradise of contentment for all eternity. He's leading us out of Satan's dark kingdom in which the king, the dark king, is never content ever. And neither are his subjects. They're just roiling in discontent all the time. That's the kingdom of darkness. Jesus is leading us out of that into a kingdom of light and joy and peace. He's also battling our own constant internal bent toward discontent all the time. And he is defending us from Satan's unending assaults on our joy and peace. So that's Jesus. He is the pioneer of our contentment. So he ministers foretaste of contentment. Uh, he empowers us to become warriors too. He wants to train you to fight for it. That's one of the, you know, in terms of application, one of the number one things I would say is that every single day you should have a quiet time. Every single day you should get yourself into a content state and then get ready to fight for it. I mean, that's just the basic application. Now, that's what I'm going to say at the end of this class, but I'll say it now. Have a quiet time. Based on the promises of God, based on prayer and all that, get yourself into a happy, content state and then get ready to fight for it because Satan's going to come after it all day long. Uh, and so Jesus enables you to do that. And so as we zero in on Jesus, we're going to look at a, a number of facets, his person, his works, his gifts. 
And, and we're going to learn how Christ ministers contentment. Jeremiah Burroughs said how Christ teaches contentment. I expand the word. He's, he's doing more than just teaching us lessons. He's actually protecting our contentment. He's actually defending. He's fighting for us. He's interceding. He's ministering. There's a whole broad-based ministry that Jesus is doing so that we'll be content. It's not just that he's giving us lessons on contentment. He's doing that too. Um, and we're, we're just learning a part of this. Uh, in the future, in heaven, we're going to see more and more of all the joy and the peace that Christ has intended to minister to us and will give us. Uh, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, and then we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. All right, so Christ ministers contentment by his example. Remember the definition of contentment that Jeremiah Burroughs gave. Now, I don't know if in a few weeks I'm going to ask one of you to raise your hand and recite it from memory. All right, I don't think we're going to get to that point. I'm not in the ministry of embarrassment. I mean, well, that's not, that's not helpful. But, um, you know, Jeremiah Burroughs said, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That's the definition. So there's a sweet, inward, quiet, gracious demeanor or disposition in contentment. The essence of it is God's wise and fatherly disposal. Word disposal will be his decrees or decisions in reference to you, his sovereign decisions about your life. God has made decisions about you. And a content reaction to that is that you're sweet concerning that, quiet, you're, you're humble under it. You're not fighting against it. What I want to say is that Jesus displayed that demeanor better than anyone ever has or ever will. He is the perfect display of a sweet, quiet, inward, gracious submission to his heavenly Father. He submitted to his Father better than any of us ever will. And you get a clear display of that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. There it says that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing or emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. All right, the form of a servant. Now that's key. Jesus was, you know, he was in the very form of God. He took the very form of a servant. And I think it's good to put those two together. He was as much servant as he was God. It's the exact same Greek expression. He was equally slave. Well, let's say slave. He was equally slave as he was God. That's the mystery of the incarnation. So as a human, he took on the role of servant. By the way, that's what we were made to be. I think we struggle with this. I'm not going to be anyone's slave. It's like, well, yes, you are. You are definitely going to be someone's slave. You're either going to slave, serve God or you're going to serve sin. You're going to serve God or you're going to serve Satan, but you're not going to be not a slave. If you are thinking I'm no one's slave, then be, be assured you're Satan's slave. That's the essence of the deception. Jesus didn't fight that at all. He knew as a human, he came to serve God. That's what humans were made. We we're made to serve God. He didn't fight that at all. So <clears throat> he took the very form of a servant being born in the likeness of, of a man. Uh, so that's the, the essence of humanity is that we were made to, to serve. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by be, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's the, the hymn of submission. 
of servanthood to the nth degree, to the infinite degree. So I've established, therefore, based on Philippians 2, Jesus is the greatest display of Christian contentment there could ever be. He submitted to his Father's will for him, even to the point of dying, even to the point of death on a cross. So I know we began the class by looking at the Apostle Paul as this great, great you know, teacher of contentment, and, all, and he is behind Jesus. Jesus is number one. Jesus is first. No one displayed Christian contentment better. So Jesus was not born into luxury, but into staggeringly humble circumstances. I think we could compare the, the birth of Jesus to the humble circumstance of the birth of any baby on the face of the earth. He was born into, into suffering, poverty, persecution, uh, soon to be a refugee. Uh, just a very, very hard <clears throat> circumstance. It wasn't an accident. It was part of God's plan. He was submissive uh, to his human parents uh, as a child, as a minor. Submissive to Joseph and Mary, obeyed their commands because that's what the law commanded him to do. And he lived every moment under the law his entire life. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, Isaiah 53.3. And in his humiliation, Jesus was at peace. He wasn't trying to better his circumstances. He wasn't trying to fight against them. He was displaying peace. So he says very plainly in John 14.27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Think about that. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled or let them be afraid. So he, he said, I, you've seen me at peace. I have lived a life of peace. And it was not an easy life. It was a hard life. I mean, we imagine, I mean, think about an average day in the life of Jesus in his ministry. I and mean, this is even before the persecution ramped up. So what are you going to do today, Jesus? I'm going to heal people one at a time. How many? More than you can count. Now you're like, why did he heal them one at a time? He could have healed the entire population of Palestine with a word, right? Sitting in a chair. <laughs> Instead, he wanted to interact with people. Remember the woman that touched the hem of his garment? He's like, who touched me? Why did he do that? He wanted the interaction. He wanted to look her in the eye. He wanted her to be a follower of Christ and of God. He wanted to redeem her, not just heal her body. So he has personal interactions with all these suffering people. And they're all utterly miserable until they're healed. I don't know that they weren't miserable after they were healed. Some people are like that. But they certainly were miserable before they were healed. So Jesus is looking in the face of disease and death and misery all the time and healing it. Like the leper, the one who's covered with leprosy. And, he's, and then he goes away happy. Go show yourself to the priests. Jesus didn't swim in their happiness. They went away with that. He took on the next one and drew that poison of sickness and death away. I mean, that was his whole day. I mean, that's an exhausting day. It was so bad that some people had to dig through a roof to get a paralyzed man. He was crowded with suffering, sorrowful, miserable people. That was every day. He was a man of sorrows and familiar suffering, looking it right in the face and healing it because that's what he willed to do. He could say, I, I just, we've had a hard last couple of weeks. Tell you what, let's heal everybody with a word and then just have a break. You know, <laughs> he just never did that. I mean, he, he could have. Remember in John 4, the royal official son, he heals him remotely, remember? He doesn't even, he, he goes home and finds out that he was healed at a certain time and then realized Jesus had done it. He could have done that in every case, but he didn't. That was not his usual way. But in this humiliation, he was at peace. He was a peaceful revolutionary, really. He didn't, he didn't, he wasn't overthrowing the kingdoms of this world by like it says in, in Matthew 12, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. 
He, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He's a gentle, humble king. That was his nature. He wasn't leading an insurrection. Pontius Pilate knew he really had nothing to fear. Caesar had nothing to fear from Jesus. His kingdom is not of this world. That's not what he's doing. He said, if, my, if it were, my servants would fight. I'm not doing that. Instead, I'm doing a humble, quiet work. And so he describes himself. And actually, Matthew eleven twenty nine is the only self-description I can find of Jesus, where he puts adjectives to himself. And that's where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am humble and gentle in spirit, and you'll find rest for your soul. So that's how Jesus describes himself. Humble, gentle in spirit, lowly in heart, you'll find rest for your souls. Those, that description fits very well with Burroughs' description of Christian contentment. Sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit. That was Jesus. Jesus also was freely submitting to his father's wise disposal in his, in his situation. And what was God's wise and fatherly disposal in his case? Death on the cross. I mean, you think about that and it just absolutely blows your mind. That's what God, his father, decreed for him. And that's what Jesus freely submitted to. He quietly submitted to it. It's powerful when you think about it. The pinnacle of Christ's example of freely submitting to and delighting in God's wise and fatherly disposal came at the cross. And we see that submission acted out in Gethsemane, as you remember. How he goes to Gethsemane to pray. And he takes Peter, John, and James with him a, a distance from the other apostles and then goes beyond even them alone. He's completely alone and he falls to the ground and says, Abba, Father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. That is a clear display of freely submitting to the God's wise and fatherly disposal. And he delighted in it. Hebrews 12, 1 tells us this. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame. So there was a delight in it, even in the midst of the sorrow and suffering and misery. We see the great drops of blood falling from the face of Jesus. So this was not easy. So when we're talking about Christian contentment and providence, I know that for some of you, it will mean incredibly bitter circumstances. And we're not minimizing that. When you have to go through sadness and sorrow and pain and loss, we're not minimizing this. I was reading this morning, this is where I'm at in my Bible reading, Genesis with the story of Joseph, and perhaps you're following that same reading. And we know where we're getting to in Genesis 50, 20, where, where Joseph says to his terrified brothers after Jacob died, they think that now he's going he's gonna to kill him, <clears throat> But he doesn't. And he speaks comfortingly to them and lovingly to them and says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to save many lives. And even Joseph at that point didn't have the full, he didn't know the exodus was coming. And beyond that, the greater exodus in Jesus, he didn't have a full sense of all that. He knew that God would come and bring them out because of the promise had been made to Abraham. And he believed it. And he said, when you come, when God rescues you, bring my bones out of this place. So he knew more was coming, but he didn't have a full understanding of it. But here's the thing. In the account I read this morning, when Benjamin comes, remember, and he sees him, he's weeping. He goes off in his room by himself and weeps. I mean, this thing wasn't free of charge, friends. There's a price to this providence. And God knows that. We're going to have that weeping time. It's like this has been, I mean, those tears, at least it's been hard for me to be here. I would have preferred to be with my father Jacob, my brother Benjamin. I mean, he's not minimizing the pain that God calls us to go through. 
Anyway, I'm digressing. I had no chance of finishing this outline before. Now I have even less chance. But Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, and following Gethsemane, what did he do? Think about it. Got up from the ground. John's gospel, he goes out from Gethsemane to meet the soldiers. They don't have to look for him. You know, they're bringing torches, lanterns, weapons to search for him and fight. Say, here I am. (laughs) Who are you looking for, Jesus of Nazareth? Here I am. Where are we going? Let's go this way. It's like he's leading them. Let's let's go. It's, It's just incredible. The boldness. And you see how he carries himself through a series of trials, religious trial, secular trial. In every case, it's like who's in charge, who's not. Jesus is totally at peace, totally submitted to this. He's not fighting it. And he's never lost his divine power. I mean, when, he, when they were there to arrest him, they drew back and fell to the ground when he just says, I am. He could have killed them immediately, anytime. But he was freely submitting to and delighting in God's wise and fatherly disposal at every moment. He put, put that on display right to the end. While they were beating him, while they're mocking him, he's holding himself back. He's submitting. He's absolutely submitting. And you think about that word submit. Another word would be obey. He's obeying his father. His father has commanded him to die. You think about that. And his response is to obey that command. And that won us our salvation. You see that in in Romans 5, 19 where it says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, that's Adam, so also through the obedience of the one man the many are made righteous. That obedience saved your soul. You are saved by Jesus' obedience to his Father's will. That's what Romans 5.19 tells us. So he freely submitted to and delighted in God's salvation plan. Every Blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus is now yours as a result. Look at all the good things that have come from Jesus being content, if you could put it that way. I like what it says in Isaiah 53.10, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So God gave him a very hard piece of music to play, very sorrowful, and he played it perfectly. And it just flourished, and it's been flourishing now for 20 centuries. You don't really even realize in your case how much it's flourished, how many blessings God has still to give you. For all eternity because Jesus submitted to his Father's will. So that's, that's almost enough. That meditation right there, Jesus being a content man under his Father's very difficult will is sufficient uh, for us to meditate on. But then Jesus, it says in 1 Peter 2, has given us an example that we should follow in his steps. He wants us to imitate him in, in his reaction. Now in 1 Peter 2, he's talking about unjust persecution. And how you should carry yourself when you're unjustly slandered, unjustly arrested, unjustly persecuted. Jesus did not return revilings. He did not, he did not attack them. He didn't curse them. But he submitted himself to his Father's will. And it says there in 1 Peter 2.21, He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my case and everything. I'm just entrusting myself. So... For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in a step. So I'm just taking that out of the immediate context of unjust persecution and applying it now to contentment for you. Jesus gave you an example of contentment that you should follow in his steps. And that's, you know, that's everything that we need. So whenever we're facing suffering, even great suffering, we do well to maintain our contentment by meditating on Christ's contentment and asking him to conform us to his pattern by the Holy Spirit. Say, would you make me like you? 
in this. Make me Christ-like. So let me stop there. Any questions or comments about that first aspect of how Christ ministers contentment by giving us an example? How could we take the example of Christ and make it come alive in our, in our suffering, in our, our struggles? It's so true. I mean, I think we've noted before that the Psalms are filled with godly complaints. Jesus lived that out. He was the embodiment of the, the, that, that type of praying that we see in the Psalms. So it's not against, Christian contentment is not against a respectful, submissive pouring out of your complaint to God. But it is, Burroughs says, against sinful shirkings. Now, the most sinful shirking there ever would have been is Jesus not going to the cross, and he would not do it. A shirking of your duty, of your responsibility. I'm going to shirk what God's called me to do because I'm going through suffering. Why should I have to do what he wants me to do? He's not alleviating my suffering. He's not answering my prayer for healing. He's not answering, well, why should I do what he wants me to do? Jesus would never do that. Any other thoughts on this, how we can take this? Yeah, Landis. You know, Landis, that's the next verse right here, John 4, 34. That's the next topic. I sense a segue from the Holy Spirit here. Christ ministry of contentment by his God-centeredness. All right, let's go. All right, we're just going to go on. Thank you, Landis. Without him, I don't think I even get through the first two or three points, so I appreciate that. Jesus perfectly displayed a father-centered focus every moment of his earthly life. That's what we're talking about. Contentment is a father-centered or a God-centered way of thinking. It's a sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal. So, oh, Father, what is your disposal for me right now? Do you have one? Oh, yes, I have one. I've thought about every instant of your life. Nothing's outside of my will for you. So Jesus lived that out. You can see that in his language. As, as Landis said, John 4, 34. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. That is father-centeredness. That's the language. Like, I eat the will of God. It's my nourishment. It's what I, what I feed on every moment. Or again, John 6, 38. I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. And he knew the price of that statement. He knew he would pay his own blood for that. But he said, my will, why I came from heaven to earth is to do the Father's will, not my own will. So that's a a little uh, pre-echo of Gethsemane. It's almost exact same mentality. Or again, John 8, 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me to speak. In other words, when, when you crucify me, then you'll see that I am completely under the Father's will. I don't even speak words apart from him. Or again, John 8, 20. He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Isn't that incredible? Wouldn't you love to be able to say that for one single day? Father, I know that I always did what pleased you today. Be like, that would be the goal. I mean, I think you should have that goal every morning. It's like, today I want to live the perfect day. I want to always do what pleases you at every moment. That's, I think you should. That's a godly ambition. Aim for perfection, it says in one scripture. But he, he did that. And then in John 12, and by the way, Jesus didn't just aim for it. He did it. I always do what pleases him. Incredible. John 12, 49. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and how to speak. So I actually think Jesus' long quiet times, his all night in prayer, that time he would spend in fellowship with his father was a display of basically, okay, we're about to do another day. What would you like me to say? What are the words you want me to speak? And then I'll speak them. 
So he was just completely under his father at every moment. And then John 12, 50, I know his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the father has told me to say. In other words, I know that if I speak these words that the father's given me to say, it will lead to eternal life. John's gospel is just super saturated with this type of language, how Jesus didn't do anything except what the father told him to say. And it's there for us. You, can, you definitely can tell as you're reading this, he's not just teaching about Jesus. He's telling you how you should be too. You should be like Jesus in this. You should only do the will of the Father. You should only speak the words the Father's told you to say. That kind of thing. <clears throat> Jesus did nothing except according to the detailed plan and command of his Father. Even in the temptation in the desert, you know what Satan's trying to do? Put a wedge between Jesus and his Father. That All of the temptations tend toward that. Go out on your own. Use your power to turn the stones into bread. Throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple. Let God the Father react to you. It's like, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. I'm going to do what he told me to do. So it, he's trying to, trying to put a wedge there. So for our own contentment, we must become more and more God-centered, focus more and more on the plans and glories of the Father. So basically, in your quiet time, it's like, oh, God, help me to be a God-centered person today. Help me to do everything for your glory, everything for your plan, your purpose, your kingdom. Help me to decrease let you increase in my own mind and heart. I want to be more and more God-centered. You can see how really the sanctification topic is a doorway into all of sanctification, really. It just becomes a doorway into everything you should want to be as a disciple of Christ. Uh, we have now the mind of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Not you should have the mind of Christ. You already have it. You have the capacity now through your new nature and through the indwelling spirit to think like Jesus at every moment. Isn't that marvelous? It's like, oh, God, give me the, not just that I have the mind of Christ, but I actually use it right now, that I think like Christ does. That's what you want. It says in Romans 8, 6, the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. I would have to say that the mind of the spirit and the mind of Christ are the same thing. There's no difference between them. Much of our discontent then comes from our selfishness in pursuing our own agenda, seeking our own glory, feeding our own fleshly desires, those kinds of things. That's where the discontent comes from. That's why you're unhappy. Christ gives us the perfect example of how delightful and fulfilling God-centeredness can be. He says in Psalm 40, verse 8, quoted in Hebrews 10, Here I am. It is written about me in your scroll. I delight to do your will, O God. He delighted in the will of God. It was a delightful thing to him. All right, Christ ministers contentment by his atonement. By his atonement. There are infinite dimensions to the atonement of Christ and a limitless flow of blessings that come to the elect by his blood. <clears throat> we will spend all eternity plumbing the depths of the riches of Christ's costly grace to us. For this idea of contentment, what we want to do is we want to look at any and every situation as a blood-bought blessing from him. Think of the phrase blood-bought. Jesus paid the price for your life here on earth. He paid the price for everything. So the power for constant contentment is blood-bought on the cross. First of all, God's wrath against you has been propitiated. One of the benefits of going meticulously through the book of Revelation is that you'll have a greater sense of just what that means. I mean, when you read the book of Revelation, just think, I deserve this, I deserve this, I deserve this, I deserve to be treated like this. I mean, how am I rescued from this dying planet and this corrupted race of rebels? 
by the blood of Jesus. And what it means is that God's active, his aggressive wrath against you as a sinner has been turned aside. It has been propitiated by the blood of Jesus. So Romans 3.25, it says of Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to perceive by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So God's wrath has been propitiated. Jesus is the lightning rod that, that has taken the strike away from you safely down to the ground. You will not be struck by the wrath of God. Uh, the wrath of God has been removed. There is no condemnation for you. What that means is that all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been 100% forgiven. They've been atoned for. They've been covered. They've been covered. So Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of God's grace. Just stop for a moment. Those two things, God's wrath is gone, all your sins are forgiven. Don't you think that that would be a limitless source of contentment for you? It's like, yes, but X is going on. I mean, do you see how foolish that is? (laughs) Yes, but I don't have any wrath against you and you're not going to die for your sins. I, I just think that should be a fertile meditation for you. It's like right now at this moment, I am a forgiven sinner. My sins have been covered. This is a limitless source of contentment here. Also, not only that, but you, a former enemy of God, have now been reconciled to God. And more importantly, God has been reconciled to you. You may say, well, I never really felt, you know, enmity with God. No, but he felt it toward you. And you actually did. You're just not admitting it, honestly. But God had an active enmity toward you. You are not any friend of his. You are not a subject of his kingdom. And he had a kingly wrath against you as an enemy of his kingdom. But that's all gone now. Now instead you've been reconciled to him. Reconciliation. So Romans 5, 10, and 11 says, If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That's what we're meditating on, the death, the atoning work. How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? There's two aspects to the how much more logic that way. It's basically Jesus in his condition and then us in our condition. Jesus, dead on the cross, atones for your sin. How much more Jesus, alive as your high priest, actively interceding, is a greater blessing. You can think of it that way. You at that time were an enemy. Now you're a beloved child of God who actually does in some way anyway yearn to please Him and live for His glory. It's actually an easier thing to finish your salvation than it ever was to begin it. We don't think that. We think it's much harder to finish the salvation than it ever was to begin it. The thing is, you weren't aware of it then because you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now you're very aware and you think, boy, what a laborious journey it is to heaven. And what a wicked sinner I am after all this time. It's like, well, yeah, but you're just now aware of it. You're in a much better condition than you were back then. That's what the logic of the verse is. It's the how much more logic. For if, moreover that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Powerful. And beyond that, and this is for me me, as I've meditated on the, the blessings of the gospel, the most surprising of them all is adoption. I mean, he didn't have to adopt us as his children. I mean, really, it's a stunning thing that he would take such filthy, nasty rebels as us and adopt us as his sons and daughters into his very family. It's incredible. And it says in Galatians 4, 5, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So it's incredible. And beyond that, an infinitely valuable inheritance has been blood-bought for you. It's been paid for by the blood of Jesus. 
Colossians 1.12, it says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Qualified. You are now qualified. It's like you're pre-qualified for a loan. Isn't that interesting? All right. Well, you have been qualified for heaven. That's incredible. How are we qualified for heaven? Well, by this atoning work of Jesus. The Father has nothing against you. More than that, he actually sees you as righteous as Jesus. It says in, in 1 Peter 1, 1.4, uh, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So, what earthly circumstances can actually make you despise those riches? It must be amazing. It must be really, really bad to get you to despise the things I've just described to you. You can see now how foolish it is. And, and you, you realize on Judgment Day how foolish it's going to look. What deception must Satan work in our hearts to get us to despise the riches of atonement? How can you actually look on the blood-bought blessings that he's given you with discontent? How can you say, yes, but look at what I've recently lost. Do you not realize how much that meant to me? (laughs) Obviously too much. If that thing that you have now lost is worth more than what I've been describing here in the atonement. It was too much to you, and therefore God is actually doing a a work of grace to you to get you to reduce that thing in your own eyes, in your own importance. It was an idol. Anything that you pit against the atoning work of Christ so that you you think the right to be discontent must be an idol. And the Lord is actually doing a work of grace in you. So we have to stand on the permanent blessings of the atonement and by Christ's Spirit drive out discontent. You need to preach to yourself, remind yourself, I am atoned for by the blood of Jesus right now. All of my sins have been forgiven. I have been adopted. I have been given an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade in heaven. How could anything that happens to me today in space and time on planet Earth drive away my joy in those gifts? I mean, that's, what you, that's how you need to fight. A strong ground under your feet. Also, keep in mind, Christ's atoning death was a most unexpected means of blessing. Did any of his disciples expect that that was going to be God's plan? Did they think that that's how God was going to bring the kingdom in for the Jews? Is that what they thought? Did not Peter rebuke Jesus concerning this? Never, Lord. He rebuked him. This will never happen to you. So what should that teach you about providence in a very lesser way in your life? Is it possible that God is going to surprise you by some difficult providences that you never expected? You did not think were going to happen, but they are very much part of God's plan. Should you not trust in your own understanding so much and realize that God actually has some hard things to bring you through that are going to have a glorious outcome in the end? It's a, it's a reenactment of the cross. None of them expected that. You remember the two disciples in the road to Emmaus? Remember that? Downcast, so depressed. I'm thinking that's got to be one of the greatest days in redemptive history. Don't you think Easter, that first Easter Sunday morning? I think that's a good day. That's a happy day. And not only that, they, of all of the millions, hundreds of millions of elect people chosen before the foundation of the world, they got to walk with the resurrected Christ that day. I'm thinking they should have been happy. What do you think? Oh, but we had hoped that he was going to be the one. Remember that? (laughs) Do you remember what Jesus said to them? How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer and then come into his glory? Couldn't he say the similar thing to you when you're discontent? How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. 
And sometimes, like Job, we need that rebuke. It kind of wakes us up and says, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me that I'm this discontent? We need that, that rebuke. But I'm just saying, God's ways are not our ways. They're very, very different. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways. And so we ought to not be shocked when adverse providences come in our lives that cause us to be discontent. And we say, there's no good reason for me to be discontent. Of course, some things are, are going to happen that I didn't expect. All right, let's move on to the next one. Christ ministers contentment by his resurrection. I guess we already began touching on that on the road to, to Emmaus. I would say this, if, Christ, if by Christ's death he ministers contentment, then how much more does he do so by his life, by his resurrection? Same how much more logic of Romans 5. If a dead Jesus on the cross is an unending supply of peace and joy in any and every circumstance, then how much more a living Christ raised from the tomb in a resurrection body that you're also going to get someday? How powerful is that? That should be a source of lasting contentment for you. In Christ's resurrection, death itself is defeated, the final enemy. 1 Corinthians 15.55 says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And as you apply that, 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, Therefore, because of the resurrection, because death's sting has been removed, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Well, that's, that's an application type of thing to the meditation, the theology of resurrection, resurrection body, all that. That's 1 Corinthians 15. He walks through all that. And then one verse of application, work hard. Be happy and work hard. Because everything you do is going to be worthwhile, eternally blessed. <clears throat> well, I'm going to take that mentality and just apply it in a lesser way here to Christian contentment. It's like, therefore, my beloved brothers, be content. And I also like the language of be steadfast and immovable. How would you put that together with contentment? Be steadfast and immovable in contentment. So that's that, that same image I gave you of having a quiet time every day, getting content, and then take your stand. And the world of flesh and the devil will come after you. And the question is, are you going to be moved from that spot by, by uh, the wave, uh, wave after wave of providential circumstance? You're going to be moved. It's like, no, be steadfast and immovable. What can move you? Nothing should be able to move us. And so we should have a contentment that just is based on the resurrection. Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. We are going to be conformed to his body, his resurrection body. We're going to have a resurrection body. What is there that could ever happen in life that would compare to that? So be steadfast and immovable. And I actually think our labor in the Lord is tied to our contentment. We can't do anything from, for the Lord as, a, as discontent people. I don't see how how we would, we would benefit at all. How can you evangelize as a discontent person? I want you to know I'm utterly miserable, but you ought to come to Christ. It's like, why should I? I can do misery on my own. <laughs> I don't need that. So we should be content and steadfast and move. All right, beyond that, in the resurrection, we are commanded in the pattern of Christ to walk in newness of life. That's that image we have from Romans 6. We're conformed to his death. We're also conformed to his life. And so we now, by the Spirit, can walk in a new life. And contentment's part of that. Present suffering is not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Think about that. So what Paul's doing in, in Romans 8.18, he's thinking about your future body, your resurrection body, the glory that will be revealed in us. Someday, like Jesus said in his parable in Matthew 13, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Someday you're going to shine like the sun. You'll have no death, mourning, crying, or pain. Your resurrection body will be powerful and glorious and 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 radiant for all eternity, right? So you think about that and you're like, well, our present sufferings aren't even worth comparing with that. 
And you should think that even as you have perhaps a, a terminal illness that God is going to use to take you out of this world. It's like, this doesn't even compare with what I'm going to get on the other side. Isn't that a good way to die? I think it's the, the best way to die. It's like, I consider that my present terminal illness isn't even worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed in me. I mean, don't you want to say that to the nurses and doctors and unsaved relatives that come visit you and all that? Just show them your faith. And I think we get to practice for that, you know, years, decades before you die, just by little deaths. You know how Paul says, I die daily. So you get to practice day after day how you're going to die. It's like, die to yourself. Die right now. I consider that present sufferings aren't even worth comparing with the glory. So that's a resurrection meditation. Jesus said in, in John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And so you just think about that. I'm gonna, I'm, that's, that's my promise. I believe in Jesus. I'm going, to, I'm going to never die. I'm going to live with him forever and ever. So that's, that's a powerful ground for Christian contentment. All right, next. Christ ministers contentment by winning for us access to God. All right, so put it simply. Were it not for Jesus, to quote Elisha saying to a wicked king of Israel, God would not even look at us or listen to us. I mean, you really need to think that way. If it weren't for Jesus, you would have no access to the Father. He would have no reason or ground to listen to you at all. When you think about Esther going in to see her husband, uninvited. He, the most powerful man on earth, king of Persia. And there is just one law if you go in there without him summoning you. Death, unless he extends the golden scepter. So that's a picture of access or not. We should think that way. We ha would have no access and by the way, I, I just think that's, that's one of the central lessons of the animal sacrificial system, of the tabernacle with all of its walls and curtains and barriers and fences. You know what I'm talking about? Around the Mount Sinai, this far you may come and no further. The first words God ever said to Moses were, do not come any closer. I mean, that's the old covenant to me. I mean, you're interested, you're attracted, the burning bush and all. It's kind of exciting, interesting, but you can't get any closer. Same thing with Mount Sinai. You're attracted. God said, they're going to want to come up the mountain. Moses said, well, you told them not to come. He said, put a fence around the bottom of the mountain so that nobody has to be killed or stoned or shot with an arrow because I'm going to kill them if they come. Well, that's us apart from Christ. He'll kill you if you try to come without the atoning work. But you know, the moment Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The way is open for us now. A new and living way, the author of Hebrews tells us, into the very presence of God. And so we have this, this invitation. We have this, this access now. Hebrews 4, 19 through 22 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We're actually not just welcomed or invited, we're actually commanded to come close to God. We're commanded to draw near to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. We're actually commanded to come. So we have access. We have access to God. And so it says in... Uh, Romans 5, 1. I don't even have that as a verse. How can I, how can I write on Axis and I don't not write about Romans 5? 
Romans 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. By the way, the author of Hebrews shows you how to do it too. Um, you do it by meditation on blessings. Therefore, brothers, since we have this and since we have that and since we have the other, then let us X. That's the way you think that way. It's like, since I have a mediator and since I have a command and a promise from God, I'm going to draw near. And since this is a time of need, right? And I often think, is there anything that is not a time of need? Those are your worst times, by the way. Jesus, you know, Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I think the flip is, when I'm strong, then I'm weak. And if you think that right now is not a time of need and you don't need to draw near to the throne of grace and receive any mercy or help at all, then you are in trouble. So you need to be continually drawing near through this access door of Jesus into the presence of God if you want to be content at 4 o'clock in the afternoon after you're wonderfully content in your morning quiet time. All right, you need to draw near. It needs to be continual prayer. All right, Christ ministers contentment by his promises. I would suggest that you just make a careful study of the promises of Christ. How many things has he promised you? How rich are those promises? The promises are the focal point of our faith. We look at the promises of God and we think about all the things that he has promised to us. Thomas Manton, a Puritan uh, pastor, said this about prayer and the word of God. Quote, show him his writing. God is tender of his word. So you take the Bible and say, see here, God, what you said here in this line? God already knows it. You're not being disrespectful, but you're showing him his writing. You know who's really being shown what? You're being shown. <laughs> God knows his writing. But we forget the promises of God. And so we claim those promises and we pray them back. Because you have promised this, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. It says that in Hebrews 13 concerning money. You know, be content with what you have because God has said, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. So that's a promise. Lord, we're having a financial trouble right now. I should be content with what we have. You've ordained that we have some difficulties now. You have said, I'll never leave you. You've said, I'll never forsake you. That's a promise. I'm going to show that to you. Would you please be faithful in this circumstance? So Christ ministered contentment by his uh, promises. So memorize promises. Christ uh, ministers contentment by his power and his protection. Okay. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is infinitely more powerful than you can possibly imagine. At the end of Ephesians 1, it says that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand and in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given. The power that Jesus has is so much greater than every principality and power and satanic assault. It's so infinitely greater. And not only that, but he has made him head over everything I like to think of it this way, on behalf of the church. Not just for the church, like he's the head of that particular Fortune 500 company, but others don't know. He's the head over everything there is for the benefit of the church. That's the way I understand that. So his authority is for your benefit. Well, how does his authority benefit you? Let me ask you that question. How does the fact that, that Christ runs everything on planet Earth, including powers and principalities and all that, how does that benefit you? Okay. He's never going to say, I'm powerless in this one. Satan really, really wanted this one. There's nothing I could do. All right, that will never happen. Okay, anyone else? Absolutely. He's in total, total control. Satan uh, has a lot of power, far greater than we do. 
But think about this, what he said to Simon. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I mean, that's, I mean, so Satan's coming to ask permission to sift. And he says, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful who will not permit you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. So Satan has to come to Jesus and ask permission to tempt you and test you. And some of them he says yes to, and most of them he says no to, I'm thinking. He does not allow any temptation except what you can bear. And with the temptation will make a way of escape for you so you can stand up under it. So Jesus' power is at work even in your temptations. He doesn't tempt anyone. But he permits temptations to test you and try you and show your, your own wickedness and corruption and cause you to be humbled and to come back and ask forgiveness and to be restored. This whole thing's part of his plan. It's an incredible thing. And therefore... As he says in John 10, he's the good shepherd. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and I give them eternal life and no one can snatch them out of my hands. That's the power of Jesus. So that's a powerful meditation. He's not going to lose any of all that the Father's given. So you're not going to get lost along the way. You have a solid assurance of your final salvation because Jesus is that powerful. And that should give you um, great confidence. All right, Christ ministers contentment. Finally, we'll finish with this one. By his presence by his presence. As we said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Surely I will be with you always, even to the very close of the age. I love the example of, of Paul in 2 Timothy. I love this. There, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17, he's on trial for his life before Caesar, I believe. And he says, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me powerful. Paul said, I was totally alone. I had no friend in court. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Do you realize what Paul's saying there? He's on trial for his life. What did he do at his court trial? What did he do? The message might be fully proclaimed. The message of what? His own innocence? His, the case, his case? No. What was he there to do? Preach the gospel. To who? I'm thinking Nero. How would you like to preach the gospel to a megalomaniac murderous tyrant? And it's going on during your capital trial. It's like, oh, don't worry about my life. I want to tell you about Jesus. <laughs> the boldness. And he says, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The lion is not the Colosseum lion that would have executed it. No, it's Satan. Satan wanted to stop him from sharing the gospel. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Does he expect to die? Oh, yeah. The time has come for his departure. He's not thinking about it. He knows he's going to die. That's not it. The question is, would he deliver the goods? At the end of his ministry, would he finally be a witness of Jesus to the Gentiles and their kings? as uh, Ananias was told at his baptism. He did. But it only came because Jesus stood at his side and gave him strength. There was a sense of fellowship with Jesus. So Jesus ministers contentment by being with you. It's the Emmanuel principle. He's going to be with you. So what you should do when you're going through trials and you're starting to become discontent, say, Lord, would you give me an increased sense of your presence here with me, that I would actually feel that you're here with me, that you love me like you did for Paul at his trial. The Lord will minister contentment to you by his presence. So any questions or comments as we finish? There's more. What else did we miss? Um, 
what he teaches about fear and anxiety. That was, that's a great study. That's a, why did I miss that one? That's terrible. All right, anyway, quickly, quickly. I go, so go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, or, or Matthew 6, and Jesus walks through all of your anxieties. Have you ever noticed what a, what a thief of contentment anxiety is? Do you realize how foolish Jesus thinks anxiety is? I don't think you do realize how foolish he thinks anxiety is. He thinks it's really foolish. Who of you by worrying can add a single thing to your life? You're not going to change anything. Not, you're not going to add one hair to your head by worrying. So why do you do it? Instead, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and let me take care of all the rest. Well, that's what he's saying. It's powerful. Oh, what was the last one? Um, how he focuses our desire te- teaching us to seek first his kingdom. That's pretty good. All right, so we more or less covered it. That's not bad. That's not. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the chance we've had to meditate on the greatness and the glory and the beauty of our Savior, Jesus. He is the captain of our faith. He is the author and the pioneer. He's the one who doesn't just command us to be content, but he says, follow me. I'll show you what contentment looks like. He is the 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 exemplar of contentment. He is the one that we want to imitate. He has won for us everything we need for contentment, and he is with us even now to minister to it. He know, to us. He knows how weak we are, and so we thank you for our Savior. Now, as we go into the sanctuary to gather together in corporate worship, help us to give all of our hearts to you in praise, singing, even if it's not our favorite song, to sing it with all of our heart, that we would pray prayers of confession or thanksgiving or anything that you lay on us, Help me as I preach in Revelation 18 to preach for your glory and help us to live all of these things that you're teaching us for your praise and your glory and for the conversion of lost people who are watching us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.